Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Global Ethics and Politics, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Emily Crandall, PhD student at the Graduate Center, City University of New York, and fellow in the Center for Global Ethics and Politics, which is part of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies. A mouthful. <laughs> Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Helena Rosenblatt about her book, The Lost History of Liberalism, From Ancient Rome to the 21st Century, published by Princeton University Press in 2018. Dr. Rosenblatt is professor of history at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. Welcome to the show, Helena. So pleased you could join us. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Before we get into the book, I'm hoping we can begin the interview by having you tell us a bit about your background in general and sort of how you came to the book project in particular. Absolutely. Would love to. It feels in a way as though my whole academic career has led up to this this book. Um, I loved history already in high school. I had some terrific teachers, um, but it was it grew uh, exponentially at in college at Hunter College, I mean Hunter College, <laughs> Barnard College. I taught at Hunter College, um, at Barnard College, Columbia University, uh, where I majored in, in history. And there I discovered intellectual history. In other words, the, the history of political thought, basically. And I decided to go for a, for a master's um, degree because of, of this love and because of some great uh, professors. Um, and over the course of, of studying for the master's, I became more and more interested in intellectual history. I had a terrific uh, professor, Larry Dickey, and I took every course that he had to offer. And it was actually, funnily enough, the course and the type of history that was the most challenging for me. Mm-hmm. Other subjects, even in the sciences, came more easily to me. I was challenged by history and excited by that, and especially by intellectual history and the history of political thought. So uh, with his encouragement, I decided to write a dissertation on Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He is a rather famous political <laughs> thinker, one of the true greats. And I uh, wrote my dissertation on him. Uh, uh, and uh, he's not normally considered a liberal thinker, but pretty much anyone after him, any thinker of um, importance had to grapple with him in one way or another, and he was a great influence on liberal thinkers afterwards. So uh, after that, which became a book, um, I then wrote my second book on Benjamin Constant, Benjamin Constant is now increasingly uh, recognized as a founding father of liberalism. He's often compared to Tocqueville, who is better known. Uh, And so I I wrote about uh, this book about him. Uh, And while I was working on both of these books and these topics, of course, I did a lot of reading and I I did a little bit. I I wrote some articles um, uh, about other liberals. And I began to, I came to the realization that there really wasn't a, a history of liberalism, a book out there 
in print or on the market that covered the topic with the kind of sweep that I thought it deserved. So I was um, excited by the challenge and I decided to try and um, encountered some, some, some problems and contradictions that caused me to adopt a new perspective. <laughs> Great. That's fantastic. Um, so could you maybe before we get into the sort of meat of it, walk us through what you think the kind of central argument of the book is? Wow. Um, as you know, um, there are many component parts to it. I think I would start by saying that my method leads to most of the new discoveries and to the story I tell. Uh, when I started, when I decided I would write this book or try to write it, I was wondering how to approach it. And, and I thought that I might, you know, write a, a book where I devoted a chapter each to the great thinkers mm -hmm. of the liberal tradition. And I did a lot of a lot of reading around, and I started thinking. Well, obviously, I said I'd probably start with, with Locke, and I would uh, include uh, John Stuart Mill, um, Benjamin Constant, obviously. Uh, but then I, I started to to think like, well, like who decided? Like, what other thinkers should I include? And how? What are the criteria I'm using to choose these thinkers? And I, as I was reading around, I was noticing that different people, different scholars were including different people in this mm -hmm. canon of, of liberal thinkers. Some people include Hobbes, some people include even Machiavelli. Um, and I, this is perplexing, right? It's, it's you know, uh, it, it, it ends up being quite contradictory because, I mean, how could these people all be part of a liberal tradition when they're so very different? I mean, some people will say uh, liberalism goes back to Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. um, so... I thought, well, how do I do this? Uh, how, how am I to write a history that really is historical, that doesn't project backwards what we think liberalism is? What I found people were doing is basically starting with the principle that liberalism is a hard, something hard to define. It's incredibly important to Western civilization, to the history of political thought. Mm -hmm. We can't hardly imagine having a conversation about politics without using the word. Uh, and yet we have this problem where we don't really know what it is. Mm -hmm. And a lot of scholars will admit that. And they'll say something like, oh, it's kind of vague, it's kind of difficult. Uh, it's a slippery concept. But I take it to mean this. And then they will go back in history and construct a genealogy that, uh, that supports their view. And I thought that's also, you know, backwards somehow. And I set out to untangle this story and try to uh, be true to history in that being such a committed historian as I am. And so how do you do that? Well, let's start with the meaning of the word. What did liberal mean to the people who used the word? What, not what it means to us, and then go looking for sort of forerunners of that. But what did liberal mean way back in ancient Rome? And I begin, as you know, in ancient Rome with Cicero. What did it mean to be liberal then? When was the first liberal party uh, formed and what did that party stand for? When did people start talking about liberalism and what did it mean? And did it then change over time, which of course it did, and what and how, uh, how did it change? So that sort of the narrative arc of my book is really the story of these words, liberal and liberalism. They are the... Uh, 
the subject, this is subject of, of the book, um, the protagonist almost is, is liberalism. And I trace this story over the course of the book. And, and a lot of, um, you make a lot of discoveries uh, that go counter to what we read in other books, to what we thought about liberalism when you use this method that I adopted. So you said um, in your answer to how you sort of came to the project that you found you had to change your mind about uh, your approach to it or change the way you thought about approaching it. Um, was this due to sort of something surprising that you found when you started doing the project or was it a feature of the, this methodological question that you're talking about? Um, well, it's, it's, you know, it's what I said, basically, that there were all these contradictions and these anachronisms. Mm -hmm. You know, how can people start a history or start talking about the history of liberalism when they first say, like, I don't know what it means, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but uh, this is what I'm going to say it means, and then I'm going to construct a history, you know. What's that all about? Yeah. You know, and so um, and so I question myself, and I have become interested in different methods of doing history of political thought. My first two books were inspired by the Cambridge School method. Mm -hmm. uh, so, in with that approach, you probably know know uh, about it um, because of your own studies. But uh, you take a contextual approach to an individual thinker, at least that's what I did with my two books. In the case of Rousseau, I tried to get at what does he mean when he writes the, the social contract, for example, or his main political thought. What was he trying to do? What was he trying to say? And it may seem obvious now that I'm saying this, people nod their head and they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's actually um, a, a rather a difficult thing to set out to do. You have to study the, his context, this, the, the problems that he was dealing with, that he wanted to solve, the meaning of his words. Mm -hmm. really, his interlocutors. Yeah. yeah, yeah, his interlocutors. And try to understand what he intended to say with the words. And not so much, you know, what it means to us today. When, you know, it's, it's not about picking up the social contract and thinking like, oh, what do I think it means? No, it's really like, what did he mean by what he said? And it's complicated. But I, I tried to do that with my first book and my second book. Now, with the third book, how do you do that with a history of a concept or a cluster of concept um, over such as hundreds of years? Well, you can't you can't do that. But I still wanted to be rigorously historical. Mm -hmm. And so I started to become interested in this Begriffsgeschichte, um, which uh, the Germans um, have been pathbreakers in, but is now history of concepts is really taking off, I think, in a big way, uh, where you use another, you know, the method. I used a lot of word searches, for mm -hmm. example, which was, was great fun now that we have computers and all these databases that helped me a lot to track the, the word and the uses of the word. Did you find anything that was really surprising to you when you were doing this or something that you think your readers are most surprised by, perhaps? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think the the main things, uh, there's quite a lot of surprises. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I would say that we're used to talking about an Anglo-American tradition. Mm -hmm. Somehow uh, America is... Uh, sort of considered the birthplace of liberal democracy or the place that's the model of de liberal democracy, the great defender, the great champion. And so it's, it's liberal democracy is Anglo-American, right? We think of it that way. 
Uh, some people, when they construct the history, they they will go back to to Magna Carta, you know, and they'll say, yeah, it's the roots of Anglo-American tradition lie deep in English history. Uh, Magna Carta, they'll mention. Um, then they'll talk about John Locke again. Eventually, you know, these ideas, so it is said, came to America, the Founding Fathers, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution. And That's there kind you of have, a neat story. It's yeah. a very <laughs> neat story, and it's a kind of a happy story for Americans, mm-hmm. at least. And for, um, but it's it's a myth. Uh, if you if you look at the the word and the use of the word, um, and the first liberal theorists who who uh, constructed this thing we speak of now as liberalism and that they spoke of then, mm-hmm. more importantly, as liberalism, they were French. The word was coined uh, in uh, the aftermath of the French Revolution, um, the first decade of the 19th century. It was theorized first by Benjamin Constant and, and people around him and Madame de Stal, not John Locke. Mm-hmm. John Locke didn't think of himself as a liberal in that sense, a liberal. He didn't talk about liberalism. Uh, Nobody did until the early 19th century. And over the course of the 19th century, liberalism is seen around the world as something very French, Mm -hmm. for good and for bad, right? Because France, and it's a revolution, so that's very scary. Uh, You have The word liberalism in that political sense does not really enter America until the early 20th century and then spreads, um, spreads, disseminated uh, broadly over time. But as late as the the late 19th century, if you look at an encyclopedia of political economy that I cite in my book, uh, under the entry liberalism, uh, you'll find a an article translated from the French Mm -hmm. where they associate liberalism with the principles of 89, meaning Mm -hmm. the French revolution Mm -hmm. often in America and in England during the 19th century, when they were speaking about the liberals in France or, or liberal political thought, they will put an E at the end of liberal liberal Mm -hmm. to make, to, to accentuate or to, indicate its foreignness. Uh, So that's very surprising, I think. The central role that France plays in the origins of liberalism. Uh, Recent historiography has suggested that they have a flawed liberal tradition, or they don't even have a liberal tradition. The second major surprise is that Germany ends up being extremely important to the history of liberalism. And Germany is certainly, if anything, has been regarded as having an illiberal tradition. But um, the fact is that around the mid-19th century to the end, to the mid to the end of the 19th century, German political economists had enormous impact on liberalism. Uh, and we haven't really discussed the contents of this thing we're calling liberalism. But liberalism, we can do that in a minute. But German thought helped really redefine, rearticulate, reformulate what liberalism was towards the end of the 19th century. Uh, so liberalism was born in France, was redefined in Germany, and came to America very late. Mm-hmm. And then 
somewhere in the 20th century, mid 20th century, this thing called an Anglo-American tradition is constructed. They start talking about this tradition, which is... in doing that sort of reaching back that you were talking about right, before. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A useful tradition. They, they, traditions are constructed after the fact, right? And for a political purpose, no doubt, um, to tell this story we spoke about before about um, America as the great exemplar and proponent and champion of liberal democracy. So do you want to sort of fill in what this liberalism that we're talking about is? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Let me do that. And as you know, the first chapter uh, discusses the history of liberalism before there was liberalism. So it's not the history of liberalism, but the history of what it meant to be liberal. And the word then, the noun that corresponded was liberality. So uh, I begin with ancient Rome and speak about what it meant to be liberal uh, in Rome. And it was then uh, referred to the virtues of a citizen. It meant being generous. It meant to be freedom loving. It meant the opposite of being selfish or self-interested. It meant being devoted to the common good, if you will. It's an aspirational ideal. Over time, this meaning of the word liberal pretty much survives in, in the sense of a noble ideal of a generosity. I think you'll find that in the dictionary today, even uh, at some point, they'll say that it's being liberal is about being generous. Um, and, but in medieval times, it takes on this Christian flavor. God is generous in his love for mankind. It becomes mingled with charity and again, it's generosity of a charitable kind, something that God wants us to be generous. God love, uh, rules with a liberal hand. You often hear this. Um, Renaissance, uh, they speak very much about a liberal arts education. What does it mean? To, what does that mean? Again, it's very much a, a education for citizenship, for young boys who are going to be leaders in society. This is an elitist concept, being liberal. Uh, we are talking about an elite, whether you're talking about citizens in Rome or if you speak about these young boys who are going to get a liberal arts education. This is quite self-consciously the uh, quality that you want in an elite or in a ruler. You want the ruler to be liberal, generous, magnanimous, freedom-loving. By the end of the 18th century, well, during the Enlightenment, the 18th century, this concept becomes, we might say, democratized. It's, it's a little tricky using that word, but in the sense that it starts to be applied more, more generously, more broadly to almost an entire society. Mm -hmm. And then what do we mean by that? We mean that society itself is becoming more generous in the sense of tolerant, in the sense of open. Um, and you'll find... Uh, philosophers speaking about this, that celebrating the fact that society is becoming more, more liberal. Uh, by the end of the 18th century, you have the word being used to describe the American Constitution uh, and comparing it to the English and saying, and people are discussing which, which is more liberal. Mm -hmm. Now, I immediately want to say that it would be wrong, I think, to jump to the conclusion that by saying that, uh, people at the time were saying that by liberal we mean that it was a constitution devoted to the protection of individual rights. Mm -hmm. 
I think by that time, there is, this is not what they mean. The emphasis yet, the emphasis until very recently is, has not been on individual rights. This is also a much later development. So what they mean then is American constitution is open. It's freedom loving. America is a generous country that, uh, that welcomes people from afar, welcomes immigrants, um, is very tolerant of religious difference. There are, uh, there are, there's a famous letter from George Washington to the Jewish community and to the Catholic community where he uses this, this, uh, term liberal to say we are, we are a liberal country, and this is uh, a very good thing. We're open and, and welcoming. So that's the first, that's what, there is no liberalism yet. Mm-hmm. Liberalism is coined uh, around 1810, 1813 in reaction to the French Revolution. And I believe the first people to use the word are actually adversaries of, of liberal principles. Um, it refers to the accomplishments, the achievements, I would say, of the early uh, part of the revolution, civil equality, constitutional, representative government, uh, and a number of of rights. Uh, And rule of law is very, very important um, part of this cluster of ideas. Now it gets, this becomes immediately anathemized with this word liberalism, which is really a smear word at first. Mm -hmm. It's a pejorative. It's a term of abuse, as most isms were in the 19th century, right? So those who, somebody like Benjamin Constant, who is one of the first to use the word in a political sense in France and starts talking about the liberal principles of the French Revolution, the ones I just uh, listed for you, he will avoid the word liberalism I haven't found him or Madame de Stael using it at all. Mm. Um, and But they do speak about liberal principles and liberal sentiments, even liberal party, even though there's hardly such a thing, you know, as a mm. modern political party at the time, uh, but he means grouping. Mm. And probably that word still, not probably, definitely still carries with it that old meaning of uh, a kind of uh, uplifting, morally righteous citizen, uh, generous, freedom-loving, all those virtues uh, that the elites are supposed to have, mm-hmm. uh, and this is this is what it meant to be to be liberal to him. So the so the old elites, the nobility, those that have lost their privileges, they will say, "You're not being liberal. Mm-hmm. You're being selfish. This is just liberalism. You're not practicing liberality." Mm-hmm. You are um, doing the very opposite. You're taking away our privileges, so you're being selfish. You're attacking religion, so you're being, you know, atheist. Mm-hmm. You are attacking the very bonds of society, so you are evildoers. Uh, and that's what liberalism is. It's uh, demonic. It's mm-hmm. satanic. There's a couple of things that you said in there that I want to uh, say more about. You pause a little bit when you use the verb democratizing or the, was it in, in adjective context or verbal? Either way. Mm-hmm. Can you say a bit more about the sort of, I, I think another surprising thing in the book is the 
the relationship between liberalism and democracy as democracy develops is not necessarily neat and congenial in the, in the way of, of that sort of mythical origin Anglo-American story might tell it. Can you yes, say a bit more absolutely. about that? Absolutely. Well, first of all, there's the word democracy uh, does not have just one meaning at the time either. Uh, there is the idea of direct democracy. There is the idea of representative democracy and people at the time have not really worked this out clearly in their own in their in their minds there's also there is also other uses of the word democracy great scholarship has been done on Tocqueville's democracy in America showing that he actually uses the word in at least six different ways mm -hmm. I think in that work in that work so even what that meant uh, was disputed the way liberalism was going to be as well. Uh, but generally, liberals were very wary of the term and of, of, of the thing. Mm -hmm. They were had watched the crowd action during the French Revolution, the uprisings, the disorder, and they were frankly appalled and scared of these mobilized masses who, who to them um, seemed irrational, prone to violence, susceptible to demagogues. Mm -hmm. And so democracy was, was not something they looked favorably upon, not the early liberals. They, uh, yeah, so liberal, the idea of liberal democracy, this, this term that we throw around so unproblematically that we think some people use the words interchangeably or anyway together unproblematically uh, would have been very, strange mm -hmm. to early liberals because there was almost a contradiction between the two terms and uh, very late end of the 19th century do you see them trying to put these two concepts together liberal democracy yeah and they, it's very clear what they're trying to do when they're doing that they they don't mean direct democracy direct rule by the people uh, they mean something something quite different so can you tell the listeners a bit about how liberals kind of responded to liberalism as a, a sort of attack on their their political views and maybe how we kind of got from liberalism as selfish to a, a celebration of liberalism as individual rights, actually. So sort of where liberals came to kind of claim the thing that was a hundred years prior and an insult to their, well, well, <laughs> to their well, worldview. Well, exactly right. Uh, they... When they were accused of being selfish, anarchist, atheists, they immediately responded, of course, and they said, that's absolutely nonsense. You're the selfish ones. You want to hold on to your privileges. Uh, we're not against religion. We're against the political power of the church. We're against censorship. We're, uh, we're not for anarchy. We're for the right to express opinions. And this is all very good to educate the public to what's going on and to make people better, more enlightened citizens. So uh, they would define themselves as the patriotic ones and explain that, no, we are for the common good. This is for the common good. We need this new form of government for the well-being of all. Uh, they did not, they spoke of rights but they always spoke about obligations and duties to the common good. In fact, most of the time they would say, you know, you have rights because you have duties. If you don't have 
uh, free speech? How can you communicate uh, to others uh, what is good and moral and convince them to be good as well? How do you participate as a citizen if you can't express your views, if you can't educate yourself in a, in a free in a free way. So these rights were really to enable good citizenship and a, and a good society. What happened in the meantime? Uh, we can skip a couple of hundred years yes. to, uh, to uh, the, what happened? Why is there this stress today on individual rights? Uh, and this is a, a main point again, of my, of my book, when we talk of the lost history of liberalism, it's the loss of this moral core of liberalism that went back to that early ancient Roman ideal of being liberal, of showing liberality. We, we lose the story because we've forgotten it. In the 20th century, something happened, some cataclysms happened, the world wars and the Cold War, and America, uh, and, and liberals at that point had become associated with with uh, large government. We have to. I have to go back and tell you part of the story so that this makes sense. Because I spoke about how early liberalism, the liberalism theorized by the first liberals people like Benjamin Constant, that their ideas were about civil equality, the rule of law, representative constitutional government, and a number of rights. Often church and state separation was part of that as well. But over the course of the 19th century, with industrialization, urbanization, and the problems that went along with this, the extreme poverty that was visible in the cities that they referred to as pauperism, what New, the liberals refer to as? Yes, yeah. pauperism. Uh, others, conservatives did as well. Um, but it was a new word at the time, showing endemic poverty. Poverty where the, seemed, it looked obvious that the poor could not lift themselves out of their, out of their poverty. Uh, at that point, these new problems triggered new solutions or required new solutions. And this is where... German ideas come into the picture. This is where people start noticing what's going on in Germany, actually under Bismarck, which is also a very uh, kind of ironic thing that a dictator, a German dictator, should have an influence on liberalism in a kind of a counterintuitive way. Mm -hmm. But uh, these German uh, thinkers start saying that the government has an obligation to intervene more, that the uh, previous econ economists have been too abstract, uh, too um, divorced from reality, that what was needed now was empirical research, data collection, what is actually going on in cities, uh, how do we lift these people out of out of poverty? poverty? And clearly they're saying the government has a moral obligation to intervene. So for empirical reasons and moral reasons, the government has uh, a, a, a duty to the citizens. And this liberals start reading about this in France, in England, in America. 
these works are translated, excerpts are published in germ in in newspapers, including eventually in America. America, a lot of students go to uh, Germany to study. You know, in universities, they were the best universities at the time in the 19th century, and they hear about these ideas as well. It causes in England and France liberals to speak more and more about the need for government intervention. They become more interested in issues of, in economic issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in England at the time, you already have a constitutional representative of the government. And, and so uh, that bit has kind of already been, been won. So now the new problem is this economic problem. And this they start calling new liberalism. And in France, they don't really call it new liberalism. They have other words for it. They call it progressive liberalism, advanced liberalism, reforming liberalism, and solidarism is another word. But basically, liberalism now becomes something uh, about uh, more government involvement in the economy. And this is the liberalism, the meaning of the word when it comes to America in the early 20th century and is imported uh, by uh, a number of, of people, including some important journalists associated with the New Republic and some intellectuals in that circle. And you see somebody like President Wilson mm-hmm. calls himself a progressive, I think, in 1916 and a liberal in 1917. So it's in that circle of progressive Republicans and Wilsonian Democrats that they start using the word liberal. And they by this now they mean this new liberalism the more state interventionist liberalism coming from England. So what happens with World War I, World War II, and then the Cold War is America's rise to power, great power status, and then the fear of totalitarianism. And with this new larger state liberalism and the New Deal, uh, Liberalism in America then becomes, means government interventionism. It means uh, FDR-style, New Deal-style policies. Uh, and when uh, and gets now criticized during the Cold War by people frightened that this form of liberalism is a slippery slope to totalitarianism, fascism, Nazism, or communism. And there's the criticism that New Deal has Russian overtones, it is said, for example. Um, and uh, Hayek's very famous The Road to Serfdom um, says that these, this new liberalism is not liberalism at all. It's precisely on that slippery slope to something very dangerous and that this was the wrong path to take when people began listening to these German ideas. And, um, and so this is uh, where, where we got to, oh yeah, so the reaction then uh, by liberals in America is to say, oh no, 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 no. we're not socialists. Uh, don't you worry. We, we're definitely not on the slippery slope to fascism or communism because we're really about individual rights. Mm -hmm. That is what we are all about. And they began to emphasize to an unprecedented degree uh, the importance to liberalism of the protection of individual rights. Mm -hmm. This is where duties falls out. And duties start and the idea of 
um, obligations to a, a common the common good uh, and certainly state obligations uh, to to uh, a, a strong state kind of interventionism. No, 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 no. The state is there to protect individual rights, mm-hmm. uh, they say more and more. And this is when they discover really John Locke mm-hmm. as a founding father. And they read John Locke in a certain way. Uh, as a real uh, defender of property rights and a certain kind of property rights. Uh, so they read him this way, and he becomes the founding father. Germany drops out of the picture. France uh, also. And uh, and there, there you have it. It's the birth of the Anglo-American liberal tradition. It's such a rich story and there's so many moving parts. I really, I thought it was so fascinating in the book how some of the kind of story, or at least if you were maybe to draw kind of liberalism in some way, or it's, it's transformations that part of its trajectory seems to be kind of bouncing between its critics, right? It's critics on the right and it's critics on the left. And I was really struck by um, how, how much work the sort of so-called liberalism as a as a sort of attack on on liberal principles kind of morphs liberalism as it as it moves between different times and different places. Um, but I was wondering if you could say a bit more about how liberals from you know the 19th century on kind of responded to the challenge from the left because hmm. um, I think there's a lot uh, a lot in the book about the challenge from the right. But I was thinking you know even like last week in the news, we were seeing the sort of Spanish Liberal Party. There's all these headlines about how they're negotiating with a far right group in order to oust socialists. And there's like, mm-hmm. it seems like this, um, you know, this challenge from the left to liberalism is still something that liberalism is like grappling oh, with yeah. or failing to grapple with or. Oh, or yeah. yeah. So- and, and, and that's a really good point. And, and even today, uh, there's this sort of horror that people uh, in the Democratic Party are starting to call themselves uh, Democratic Socialists yeah. or Social yeah. Democrats. And oh, no, no, this is a very scary thing. Well, First of all, the, tr- the truth is that, okay, the word socialist um, also uh, took a while to acquire the meaning that it has today. Uh, at first, there was no problem of being a liberal and being a socialist. Uh, it basically meant, or, or being social, it started. It basically meant, it was a word first used in England that came to France uh, in sort of around 1820s, I think it is. <laughs> You've got to look in the book to find <laughs> out exactly when. Um, and it really referred to somebody or described somebody who cared for the poor, who wanted to do something for the poor. Not very much more than, than that, the term meant. Of course, uh, people could apply it in different ways and suggest different ways of being kind to the poor. But when what then they started to refer themselves as socialists appealed to liberals. I mean, they didn't go to conservatives. They went to liberals because they felt those were the ones who were going to listen to them. Mm-hmm. And it was entirely possible to be liberal and socialist. I think I, think I just said that. Um, and uh, as you've seen, this what happened afterwards is, is also an example of that, that they were open to these ideas uh, of, of interventionism. Uh, but what happens also is there are groups within 
lib- the the liberal family, let's say, who think that they're not doing enough. Mm-hmm. They're not doing enough to help uh, the poor, and they start breaking off and attacking their own sort of partners in a way um, of not doing enough. No, you're being hypocrites. You're actually not uh, practicing your own values. We need to do more for the poor. And you're being you're being egotistical. And they start calling themselves uh, socialists and attacking liberals from the left. Uh, so liberals then have to they have to react. They're, they're sort of in the middle between being attacked from the right and being attacked from the left. And in some ways, they take a sort of centrist, moderate position mm-hmm. the whole time. But it's it's simply wrong to think that there's a necessary break between being uh, liberal and being socialist for most of its history. Again, you know, it's it's how you define the terms. Terms, words are so important. They have such a rhetorical force, right? And there are tools Mm -hmm. and people use them as weapons against each other. Uh, Listen, in this country when for for a long time, it wasn't possible to call yourself a liberal, you know, the L word uh, was uh, an insult and something to shy away from. Well, now suddenly, you know, there are times in history when, you know, socialist, oh no, you can't possibly be a liberal and be, be socialist or have socialist sympathies. Well, throughout the history, yes, this, of course, if you, if you just, dis- if you define socialist as being for violent overthrow <laughs> of the system, no, liberals are not for that. But there were, that wasn't many, many, not many people defined a socialist that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, so many things I wanted to ask about. Uh, what was the other um, oh, I was really interested in the sort of account of the like creation of Western civilization and then the kind of like period where liberalism sort of um, s- sort of developed alongside kind of race science and eugenics and then had to sort of like quickly kind of get out get out of there. Could you say a bit about that that part of the 20th century? Oh well, this is a this is a very uh, dark side of the history of liberalism, uh, I, I don't want anyone to get the impression that this is all happy history of, of heroes. In many ways, I do think that they were the sort of good guys of history, um, the reformers, the idealists, uh, also pragmatic, um, a lot of good things to say about liberals, but they were far from perfect. And they, many of them were, uh, racist at times, um, some were imperialist, again, not all of them. And in fact, it's not the distinct, distinctive, um, distinguishing factor of, of liberalism is not its racism since unfortunately, regrettably, everyone pretty much was, was racist. So uh, to characterize liberalism that way is somewhat unfair, um, in that way. Um, and sexism as well. Um, in, in the same in the same way, every time there was racism, there were people, there were liberals also who said that's wrong, and you are betraying your own principles. And there were women and also men, not many of them, early on saying that that about sexism, about denying political rights to women, that they were liberals were betraying their own principles. Um, eugenics is a horrible chapter. Uh, in in the history of liberalism, 
But yes, there was this move in the late 19th century uh, to uh, think that on behalf of the of society, on behalf of the common good, it was necessary to isolate uh, the unfit or make sure even that they weren't born um, by positive and negative eugenic methods, they referred to it. Here again, you see, though, that liberalism to, to identify liberalism so closely with the protection of individual rights mm -hmm. is is wrong um, it, because clearly these were not individuals whose rights were going to be protected. Mm -hmm. And it is ironic uh, in a very um, disturbing way, to say the least, that on behalf of the common good, you would then do this to people, incarcerate them. And by un unfit is such a capacious, uh, vague term that within under that category, you could identify people with um, mental illnesses, with epilepsy, or people who are unemployable. I mean, what does that mean? Criminals? Uh, you know, what does that mean? And who gets to define that? And, and um, they believed in things like, yeah, putting people... Uh, away in, in camps, uh, in um, enforced sterilization. And not, again, not all of them. We can't yeah. just make a sweeping a statement, not at all, because there were also many liberals who said, no, this is wrong. And there were different ways. There was positive eugenics, negative eugenic, positive meaning, um, um, actually, I don't know which one's which now, but the one that <laughs> uh, where you try to encourage people to uh, be healthy and have healthy babies. And I guess that would be positive. And the negative is like stop people from from having children um, if they if they were regarded as unfit. Yeah. So a, a very, a very uh, sad chapter. It was, again, across the political spectrum, not just liberals. And it was uh, in America, in England, and in France. Um, so what do you think maybe are some kind of lessons you hope that your readers will get from, from the book? Oh, here, there are many. We're going through a crisis today. Most people are, are, are talking about it or horrified by it, the rise of populism the rise of what some people are calling illiberal democracy, not just in other places, but right here at home in America. And liberals in the past have had to deal with this uh, problem, the tendencies democracies can, can have to become illiberal, the need for civic education, the need to teach history <laughs> to, to students, to tell them this story of what people have had to fight for, what their constitution means, what it means to be a citizen, about the moral core of citizenship. I think this is uh, uh, a lesson that we cannot repeat, uh, and you know, too often. The role of elites, uh, educated people, wealthy people, to feel uh, responsible, to feel obligations to the common good, uh, these are these are uh, some of the lessons um, that we we uh, can learn from this. We can talk about the fact that there have always been debates within among liberals, and that yes, this can weaken them at times if they don't find ways to find common ground to 
identify the enemy, um, to warn against demagogues, to come together then, whether you're a little bit on the left side of liberalism, whether you're one, one more on the social democratic side or a little bit uh, more on the conservative wing of liberalism, that you come together to fight against demagogues and would-be dic dictators who will use democracy against itself, so to speak, uh, and to understand that an uneducated populace is susceptible to manipulation by propaganda. We've seen this as another thing I discuss in my book, as you know, Napoleon mm -hmm. and the use of propaganda. History does seem to repeat itself, um, doesn't it? Un unfortunately, hopefully we can learn the lessons from the past. I often say that I, as a historian, and I'm comfortable about predicting the future or giving lessons, mm -hmm. uh, direct lessons to today. On the other hand, we have we can learn a lot from what we've been through. Uh, and uh, so I hope those are some of the lessons people can um, draw maybe by reading my book. Great. There's so much more in the book that can be talked about in a short podcast episode, so I hope people will pick it up. But before we conclude, perhaps you can tell us a bit about what you're working on now. Well, thank you. I'm just starting um, an exciting project, which will be an intellectual history of Madame de Stahl. She features in my book mm -hmm. as one of the early liberals, but I think she is um, undervalued and uh, she's a formidable personality. Uh, so books have been written about her, but they have stressed her private life, if you will, her extort. She was one of the wealthiest women in Europe. She mm -hmm. was a great intellect, a great salonniere, um, a larger than life personality who traveled all around Europe. Uh, but I hope to... Um, restore her to her rightful place as a founder of liberalism. Excellent. That sounds very exciting. And we'll be looking forward to maybe having you back on to talk about that when it comes out. <laughs> I would love to. Great. Um, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. The pleasure was all mine. All thank right. you. And take care.